Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And um, forgive me for the technical difficulties. Our internet at the store went down. And so at the last minute I had to race all the way home. So we're doing this a little bit, uh, a little bit late. So thanks for bearing with us. Uh, we are delighted to have Amy Peace with us today. She's gonna be talking about her, her really crit critically acclaimed new book called North Woods. And uh, our good friend, William Kent Kruger has kindly uh, agreed to come in and talk to Amy along with Barbara. Um, as always, I'll be monitoring the comments and questions on Facebook and YouTube. So if you have any questions for Amy or, or Kent, go ahead and put them in and Barbara will bring me on screen uh, towards the end of the hour and I'd be happy to ask any questions you might have. So Barbara, over to you. Thank you very much, Patrick. This is sort of a Midwest mystery night because even though I'm in Arizona, I actually grew up in Chicago where winter was a very serious thing. They closed the school when it got to be 25 below zero. I can remember that when I was a kid because the boiler gave out. But we're having this weird weather in Phoenix where it's freezing and as a result, all of the digital stuff is not working. So apologies for being late. I would like to thank Amy for signing copies of Northwoods, um, which are on their way to us, unless UPS flounders into a drift or whatever terrible thing might happen. And um, and Kent gave an absolutely wonderful rave review to this book. And so I'm pleased, guys, that the Midwest is sort of making a renaissance in mystery because you know, I keep asking why are there why there are no like Chicago or Illinois set, you know, it, it seemed to me that this is a part of the country that's largely overlooked. But what's interesting to me is that it seems to be focusing on Wisconsin. So is there something about Wisconsin that is particularly mysterious? Uh, you know, I've been hearing agents and editors lately talk about Midwest, Midwest noir. So it must be a new the new hot thing. I think it probably is, although Kent's been holding up his end of it for, well, <laughs> for decades. When you said you said Renaissance, um, Renaissance or Renaissance, right. um, <laughs> Midwest uh, uh, crime. Why do you think it's a rebirth? What what came before Amy and uh, and me? Um, I think that mystery fiction for a long time has been sort of a coastal thing. You know, it was either Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, Seattle. Um, or very so much. you're saying this is a new wave in... Uh, I in think, the... you know, because you know how publishing is. Everybody rushes to do the same thing, but differently. And then mm -hmm. after a while, the same thing becomes the same thing once too often. And then everybody goes looking for new ground. It's it's why we have this romanticy thing going on. You know, um, if you look at the bestseller list, which as far as I can tell, since I do the New York Times reporting and get it every week, it's been static now for what, like eight weeks? The same books have been on, on the top. Um, and I think that's kind of a measure that um, for right now, crime fiction is not, you know, how it goes in waves. And right now it's been, it's down, but I think it's starting to come back up again. And the other interesting part is that I think maybe the whole twisty betrayal Gone Girl design may have sort of reached its peak and maybe we're coming back to the more straightforward private eye or, or police. Or interestingly, here's what I think is really fascinating. The podcaster has become the new sleuth. It's true. If you, you know, if you look, I can't tell you how many books I've read where the true crime thing and the podcaster that gives them an impetus to become an investigator um, and bring people with them because they kind of, you know, they crowdsource it. 
Um, but anyway, I think the Midwest um, is an area that hasn't had a, a huge population of crime writers. And now everybody, you know, there's there's a bunch of people writing it. A lot, and as you point out, a lot of them from Wisconsin. So uh, what's going on in Wisconsin, Amy? A lot of cool stuff. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, you know what? I've lived here my whole life, so I can't really compare it to other places to gauge what might be different. But I think that there's um, a lot of nostalgia in the Midwest and, you know, especially in Wisconsin, which I think is something that I included in my book is a glimpse of the nostalgia of the Northwoods of Wisconsin. You know, I think one of the things, too, is just that it's um, it, it kind of an exotic locale. You know, we so much of crime fiction is, as you point out, on the coasts or in very large cities. But when uh, when those of us in the Midwest write a novel, typically it's going to be a rural setting. And I think that's refreshing uh, in, in the show. I so loved your sense of place, Amy. It was so dead on. Thanks. I love Shaky Lake. I have to say, I thought if you were going to name something, Shaky Lake has all sorts of connotations. <laughs> what what inspired you to call, because it's important in the book, uh, what inspired you to call it Shaky Lake? I was driving somewhere, I don't even know where it was, out in the middle of nowhere, and there was a lake that I passed that was called Shaky Lake, and, and I just remembered it, and years later, decided to use it. Well, it was hey, Amy? Uh, for those who are watching who aren't familiar with you or with Northwoods, maybe the elevator version of, of your story? Yeah. So Northwoods is um, set in modern day Northwoods of Wisconsin, and it follows the story of Eli North, who is a sheriff's deputy in a small town. And Eli is um, also an Afghan war veteran, and he's going through a really tough time, to put it mildly. And in the middle of all of this personal crisis, one night on the job, he stumbles across the body of a, a boy who's been murdered. And then soon the boy's friend goes missing, the FBI gets involved. What started out as a local small town murder investigation becomes a much larger conspiracy with much more far reaching implications. So could you mention your medical background? Because I think um, in order to write this book well, your nurse practitioner career has been a, a, a crucial part. Yeah, I definitely could not have written this book without 20 plus years of experience as a healthcare provider. Um, partly because, you know, there are elements in here that include things like big pharmaceutical companies and um, hospital scenes, a lot of, uh, I think, portrayal of mental illness and addiction. Um, and I think that if I did not have the experience I have, it would be very easy for those sorts of themes to fall into cliche. Whereas I think that I have a deeper understanding of what life might look like for someone who's struggling with those sorts of things. Now, what is Eli struggling with? Eli is struggling with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder related to a pretty specific event that happened when he was in Afghanistan. Um, and then he, by way of medicating that, um, is uh, abusing alcohol. This book opens with this wonderful metaphorical scene 
um, essentially of Eli treading water, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is, uh, is is what his life is all about. I loved that opening uh, of this novel. Yeah. Yeah, there ended up being a lot of water metaphors in the book. Hey, it's Wisconsin. Yeah. Lakes, rivers everywhere. If you don't tap into them, you know, you're missing a great opportunity. You, you kind of can't. You It's hard to avoid having a water metaphor, really. <laughs> in the state and then around the state. You know, I, I took, Ken knows this, but my husband and I took a cruise of the Great Lakes, which has now become a very popular. And it started in Duluth and went around Lake Superior. And then I got to Door County. I've never been to Door County, Wisconsin before. And then, you know, Lake Huron and on through um, Erie and Ontario. And more of it was really on the Canadian side than it was on the U.S. side. But it was really fascinating to, um, you know, experience the middle of our country as though you were, you know, in the Mediterranean or something. I mean, and it's so gorgeous. Yeah, it's an exotic locale for people who have never really been up here before. You know, Amy, your book hit for me on uh, two of the most important aspects of a of a novel that I'm I'm going to be drawn in to read, and that's one profound sense of place. You do it beautifully, and the other is the uh, the characters. When uh, when I used to teach creative writing, I would try to pound into my students' head the idea that um, a good story isn't about what happens. It's really about what who it happens to. And you gave us characters that, particularly with Eli and Marge, I love Marge as well, um, that we could really embrace as fully human. Could you talk about developing these characters? Yeah, Eli must have been living in my brain fully formed for a long time. Because when I when I when he first came onto the page, I knew him inside and out. I knew what choices he would make, what his flaws were. Uh, Marge, I developed a little bit more along the way. Um, I I really like character-driven books, especially if they do also have a plot, which is why I think crime fiction can be really good um, in that regard. Um, I just, there, there is emotion to a story that... I think has to be there in order for me to enjoy reading something. Um, and there was a whole lot of emotion in this book, certainly, you know, it, it just, it, it, it's, these are real people. Like it's what, really like the water, people. it's all around you in this story. Yeah, it is. Um, I thought that the character, I'm trying to remember her name, um, but the wife that comes into play, you know, the drug addicted, whatever it is. I thought her story, Rachel, is that her name? Oh, yeah, Rachel, Rachel, yeah, the, the mother, yeah. yeah. Rachel, um, I thought I thought she was a surprise. You know, mm-hmm. you set her up one way and when, no spoilers there, but when we get to the end of the book, we see her quite differently. And, um, and I thought that was extremely well done because most of the time when you meet somebody like her, you just, they're, they're going to be a write-off, you know, they're not ever going to triumph over what's going on. And so I thought that was a, a very helpful note if you're, you know, developing character. I, I like, I really like the ending of with her. You know, I, one thing that I've learned as a healthcare provider too, is that stereotypes, everyone stereotypes, it's just a natural thing to do, but they're usually not accurate. Um, and they certainly don't make for good fiction. So 
I wanted to depict folks struggling with things like addiction in a way that let people understand that the stereotypes we have about folks like that aren't the whole picture. So, you know, we have an image of someone who's addicted to heroin. Well, they must, you know, be sitting on a street corner with a sleeping bag next to them. it's And it's just not true. Um, so it's important, I think, to to push past a stereotype. And I hope I did that. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of suspense in this book that has nothing to do with people being in danger. That's a that's a wonderful way to create suspense. But uh, you've gone a, a more literary route in that there's so much tension in the relationships that exist in this book between uh, Eli and his mother, Marge, uh, between um, Eli and uh, and Michelle as estranged wife. Um, it's it really, in in a lot of ways, it is a, a question of the the forces that seek to divide family, and then what is it that holds family together? You, I thought you explored that quite well here. I love yeah. Marge. I thought Marge was a, a mm -hmm. marvelous character. Um, she's the actual chief of police, or I think that's her title. But anyway. Sure. The sheriff, right? Mm -hmm. And Eli is working for his mother, which already <laughs> already creates some tension, right? Boys working for their moms. Um, that, that's that's difficult. But don't you think, don't you think, Ken and Amy, that a lot of this is about Eli struggling with Eli? I mean, the the, the most difficult relation Eli has in this book is with himself. Absolutely. He's lost complete control of himself. And he's a guy who's used to being in control, smart, capable, strong, both physically and mentally, you know, someone that can be relied upon. And that's all fallen apart. And he just has never had to deal with anything like that before. And he tried, he tried, he tried to find a way to get better and it just didn't work. And he's drowning, you know, to use the, the metaphor again of the water. And, you know, he's a character who frustrates me as a reader, frustrated me as a reader, because I kept hoping and I kept hoping. And he was like, not getting there. And he was not getting there. And I'm not going to say anything more about that because I don't want to spoil anything. But I want to come back for just a moment to something. You know, Barbara uh, um, mentioned Marge as uh, chief of police, which I understand could be confusing. She's actually the county sheriff, mm -hmm. right? but she has such a small force there's like four four people on on this uh, rural county. How did you do your research for that? Oh my gosh, I I did my research through a Facebook group called Cops and Writers. That was a big part of it. Um, I also tried to keep any sort of procedural stuff as vague as I could. Yeah, um, I get that. Just to not show the fact <laughs> that I don't know anything about that sort of thing. I, you know, I I. Maybe that was one of the reasons that this focused a lot on Eli and his emotional arc, because I was just, you know, throwing things at the wall when it came to the actual crime procedures. So here's a question. I mean, chiefs of police basically are town and sheriffs are basically counties, right? Isn't that how that works? San Francisco, I think, is the only city that's also a self-contained county. So I learned this from John Lesquire years ago. You know, it has its own sheriff and its own police chief. Phoenix is in Maricopa County, and Maricopa County is like an entire state. It's so huge. 
So, and you've had some interesting sheriffs in Maricopa oh, yeah. County. <laughs> yes, you could really write books about them. <laughs> but anyway, you know, the jurisdictional clashes can be very interesting, and and they they help often that conflict helps create more conflict in the story. But my question is, how big does the town have to be to deserve a police chief or in the areas that you're talking about, are there no police chiefs and it's just the sheriff because the towns are so tiny? I've never really thought about how big a town needs to be in order to have its own police force. And maybe that's a question of funding more than anything else. Is well, there a tax yeah. base for them to actually have a police department as opposed to using the sheriff? I, I asked a similar question on that Cops and Writers Facebook group and I got enough of a mixed bag of answers that it made it within the realm of possibility that a town would just have this much law enforcement. And also, you know, I, with Longmire, didn't, weren't there only a few people manning the station in Longmire, I think. So you're basing all your research on what Craig Johnson does, huh? <laughs> Cross population yeah. 20, 26. I'm actually supposed to be in Ucross, Wyoming right now, but because I got pneumonia um i had to cancel because it didn't seem like a really good idea to go to northern wyoming right no. at the moment um but yeah craig craig i think illustrates you know of course he has some supernatural help that creeps in and other stuff which which is interesting um but it's not uncommon to have a fairly understaffed yeah uh, rural sheriff's department you know funding is a, is a huge issue you bet well it. and funding when i think because this is the first book in a series and i will, you know, down the road have certain other elements, of course, that come into it. So I sort of plant the seeds very early on. So I have stuff to work with. Um, and funding, you know, there are human beings who hold the purse strings and human beings can have motivations that go in a different direction than public safety, shall we say. Well, you don't show it to us. I mean, because he's not there anymore. He's been let go. But there is another law enforcement agency that Eli belonged to um, before he got downsized. And, you know, so what is that a possibility of rebooting it? What is it? The Fish and Wildlife Department, I think it was. Yeah, he was a special investigations warden for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And when he got back from Afghanistan, you know, his job was waiting for him. But then within six months, the job was eliminated and maybe someday that job will come back. That would be kind of, you know, a cool thing to have happen for Eli someday. Or to have somebody else have the job, which would create even more problems for Eli. Why don't we plot our second book, Ken? Why are we wasting our chance here? <laughs> uh, um, so I have a question, so, sort of a developmental question for you, Amy. Um, how long was this book in the process before you, um, before it's in the form that we see it now? Yeah, I think I, I think I worked on this book for about three years um, and then started querying. And so it was quite polished when I started querying. And so the form that you see it in now is pretty much the form I set, uh, sold to the publisher. But, but that was, has... I sold it to them June of 2022. So it's been a long time in the making. Well, I, uh, I um, watched an interview with you in which you talked about earlier iterations of the story in which there were like young babies involved or something like this. So this story really did evolve over time. I'd like to know kind of where it began. Um, 
Well, and I'd like to know, are, are you a mystery reader? And is that why with your debut piece of fiction, you chose to write a mystery? I do read mysteries. I wouldn't say that it's the primary genre I reach for. I actually really like, um, like bodice rippers, like uh, <laughs> historical romance, like very genre paperback only, you know, um, the, the way that this story came to play is that I was bored on my commute to work and I challenged myself to think of an image, just whatever first popped into my mind. And it was a, an, a melancholy man floating in a lake at night. And suddenly at last by Etta James starts playing over the, oh, interesting. across the lake. And it was so vivid that, you know, like I got to wherever it was I was driving and wrote that down. And the next probably two or three chapters just poured out. And it was so vivid that I knew that it was something that I needed to explore more even. And, and it, I guess I just knew it was a crime fiction right away. And I don't know why, but enough of the beginning of it poured out right away that I, it, I guess I'm writing a crime novel. Or, or two or three. <laughs> I hope, so. I hope at least three. Yeah. All right, so let's ask you that question, Mr. Kruger, about Iron Lake, which was your first book for Cork O'Connor, your first book and our first time together. So what inspired you to write crime, crime? I mean, sorry, Iron Lake as a crime novel? Well, uh, my father was a high school. This is a story I tell audiences all the time. Um, and it's a story I love to tell. Uh, so my father was a high school English teacher. And uh and when I was 18 years old, he insisted I read Ernest Hemingway, and I fell madly in love with Hemingway. And I tried for a very long time to write the great American novel as Ernest Hemingway might have written it, stupid on so many levels. Uh, but then uh, I went through my early 40s in a midlife crisis and thought, the hell with trying to write the great American novel. I want to write something somebody might actually want to read. So I looked around me to see what everybody reads. Everybody reads mysteries. It's a genre whose appeal cuts across all socioeconomic levels, all uh, age demographics, all ethnic groups. So I decided I'm going to write a mystery. <laughs> and the reason I asked about the the development of your first uh, your debut novel here was it took me four years to write uh, the manuscript for my first novel, Iron Lake, and it I, because I was, you know, st I was working full time first of all, and I you still work full time? Yep. Yeah. And and I was learning how to write. I uh, was learning how to write a mystery. So there you go. Can you, yeah, you know, I, sorry, I just had to ask him. He was distracted by the coffee shop, but he tells me that actually that's where he is most comfortable writing or used to be. But sorry, carry on. Well, I was just going to say that my writing process for Northwoods was the the biggest mess. It was I knew I knew the first three chapters and then I knew the finale chapter and I didn't know anything in between. And so it was this weird, messy process that I don't I don't recommend that to any new writers at all. I mean, the only reason I know that now that I'm working on the second book in the series, I am just going on faith that I can pull it off because I did it once before. Do you find, um, we talked about this very early in my career, Barbara, the sophomore slump, the mm -hmm. second book, um, Amy, you have come up with a, a book that I think is going to probably get a lot of nominations. Um, and th the challenge then is how to follow it up. But one thing I want to tell you is, don't worry about that. Yeah. Write the book you want to write, just yeah. uh, you pour your heart into it and the hell with all of that stuff. 
but but here's oh another. yeah I mean worrying about it doesn't help so yeah. but Amy how long how long has it been since you turned in this book and 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 we came to publication has it been a long time um so I sold the book to Emily Bessler books in June 2022 and I think I I submitted officially the manuscript in November 2022. So okay. it's been, so you've had you this came up, Kent, when I was talking to um JT Ellison and Jane Ann Krentz on their launch, or maybe it was last night. I don't know. They all, you know, whatever. Yeah. But anyway, what we what we recognize is that the time to publication is is long. It's it's really longer than it used to be. And what that actually means is that the writer is less in danger of a sophomore slump because the pressure is not on producing a book in like six or eight months. Yeah. You, know? yeah. you now have time while that whole process is going on with your first book, which after all you wrote when nobody really knew or possibly even cared that you were writing it, you know, so you had forever. But now the time stretch allows you to take a lot more time with your second book. And that, I think, was really the problem with the sophomore slump is that most of the time the book had to be written too fast. If you don't mind me asking, Amy, when's the deadline on the second manuscript? <laughs> oh, I'm not on contract for it. Wonderful. Great. No pressure. So it's the, the second book is just it lives in my computer and that's it. Great. So you plan no, to develop it. Nothing official, except for to uh, me. Just, just as an aside here, you're with Emily Bessler Books, a great imprint from Simon & Schuster. Emily was my editor for a very long time. Oh. Yeah. And so you've got, uh, you, you're worth a good organization there. They're wonderful. They're, I, I've, you know, you hear when you're, you're aspiring to become a writer, you hear a lot of stuff about what to expect in the publishing process. And most of it is pretty discouraging. So I I have gotten the what to me feels quite like the Cadillac treatment here with this book, and I am so thankful. Mm -hmm. I've been with Simon and Schuster twenty five years. I think they're great. Mm -hmm. They are great, and you know, just as we talked about cycles in publishing and so forth, there are also cycles in publishers, which are the you know because they oh, take yeah. and fall, and and it's largely powered by who's actually running the company. And yeah. um, Simon & Schuster was an extremely fortunate. They had a very powerful woman who died unexpectedly out of the blue. Sadly. Yeah, has been able to take over um, and do an amazing job. So Simon & Schuster, years ago, you probably remember this, Kent, didn't really, their philosophy was that if we published it, readers will come. I mean, they didn't make any huge effort. This is a long time ago to do um, marketing or whatever it is. And oh, I remember now, those days. Oh, yeah. Um, and now now I have to say, I think they are among the savviest um, and most, um, um, what's the word I want? Supportive. Ad yeah, supportive. But, but also, I mean, there's not a day, not a day that goes by that my email does not have something from Simon & Schuster Marketing with various books and so forth in it. They really get behind their authors and they're doing an amazing job. And so right now I rate them, you know, as one of the top two publishers. And I, years ago, I didn't feel that way. So, you know, it's, it's great to, you know, to stick with one. Um, 
I, I like the fact that you've always been there, Ken, and your backlist is all there too. So, you know, they've treated you extremely well. And yeah, I think you've got great things ahead of you, Amy, with yeah. with mm -hmm. SNS. No, I have a I have a question for you, Amy. Um, you uh, you have a job. You have children. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about when you find time to write. How do you do that? How do you go about? What's your? Do you have a daily routine? What's what goes on? I don't know. I don't know when I write. I think on weekends sometimes I'll be like to my husband like. I'm going to go to the coffee shop for four hours. You got the kids and just try and sneak in things like that. It is, it is a very slow process. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that with, you know, potentially sometimes sooner rather than later, I can maybe cut back on hours a little bit at work um, to find time to write because after the kids go to bed is, not my most creative time, that's for sure. You know, when I uh, was really working hard on my early novels, I cut back my hours. So I was working six hours a day rather than eight. And I got to tell you, Amy, it made an enormous difference. I was mm -hmm. able to, you know, focus that on my writing. So good luck with that. I hope it, I hope you're able to accomplish that. Yeah, yeah right now I work, I have a day off every other week. And that is okay. that is my day to write. But That's it. A day off, one day off every other week. You should join the union. Yes. Is that a reflection oh, yes. on yep. medical care in in Wisconsin, or are you still a nurse practitioner? Yeah. Yep. I'm a full time nurse practitioner, uh, HIV specialist, um, and my husband is a full time middle school teacher. So just having him have a high intensity job too. And then our kids are second and third grade. So it's just a lot oh, of energy. Oh man. Well, I commend you for producing a book at all. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, what that says to me is, is that there's a passion inside you that, that found a way to get this first book done. It's going to find a way to get the second and the third and all those that follow. Yeah. So I, and if, and if folks ever ask me, you know, advice for the new for an aspiring writer it's that you've got to really want to do this because it's very difficult there's a lot of frustrations and setbacks so your your drive to succeed needs to be ironclad and and I do have that thankfully so but otherwise there you there's got to be something keeping you going so what was your quest for an agent you know because you can't actually do this all by yourself mm-hmm well, I just did things a real traditional way. I just decided, okay, I'm ready to start, start querying and started reaching out to agents, anybody that I could find that seemed to maybe want my a novel like mine. Um, and I found my agent, Amanda, with bookends in about maybe like a month. So it went really quickly. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. And she and I polished the manuscript a little bit and then she shopped it to um, like maybe a handful of publish of editors at publishers. And that went really quickly too. That was like a couple weeks. That's astonishing. Sometimes that whole process takes months. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's not like I only queried a couple agents and that was that. I think I like made myself a goal of querying 10 a week or something like that. So it was actually a lot of people who said no to me. I just did it in a real compact way. Ah, okay. Right. Yeah. 
So another question I have, um, in your writing a rural book, there's always, not always, but frequently there's an animal that is a key part of the cast. Um, and, you know, so if you were to put one in or if you put one in, you know, what sort of animal would you have? <laughs> I have, there's a dog. Eli has a dog. That's right. to give it up when he moved out. And her name is Bella. And everyone is pretty convinced that she's actually a wolf. And in fact, I came up with a mood board of of inspiration pictures for all the characters. And Bella's inspiration photo is a Game of Thrones direwolf. <laughs> I mean, I think it's kind of a natural thing, you know, if you're writing something, especially with woods and, you know, all of that, that there needs to be a dog, really, basically, or a wolf. Oh, yeah, in my early, in my early uh, Cork O'Connor novels, there were dogs. Cork had dogs. Henry Malou had dogs. People right. love dogs. I don't know. They love cats, too, apparently. I'm a dog person. Well, I think a cat is perhaps not as potent, you know, in a in the setting that you've got there. I, cats seem to be, you know, a little more domesticated, but dogs can, you know, run. And then and then there's fishing. Um, and fishing, you know, seems like a natural in a place that's all full of water. <laughs> so there's fishing in the book. And, you know, it's a very nice um, fishing scene that kind of brings the book to an end, which I very much enjoy. So... Yeah. Um, are you a fisher person or is there one in your family or did you just sort of wing it? Oh, I mean, I have fished. My husband's a big fisherman. Mm. I've just been around it all my life, you know, and this is something that probably Kent can attest to too. And I think this is like Minnesota's like this too, but in Wisconsin, hunting and fishing are huge things, you know, culturally. And economically. Hunts. Yeah. 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 So, so you know, when, because if there are some authors that have like, like, I think some of the military thriller authors have websites where they are on their Instagram or whatever, they'll um, be, sp have sponsorships with like knife companies and stuff. And that's just like totally normal to me. My dad always had a buck knife on his belt. Mm -hmm. Always. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's a prominent atri author who definitely has weapons <laughs> yes. as part of his shtick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, we, and we and you know that. what's funny, and I so I I I'm referring to Jack Carr, which is of course you are. So I went to BoucherCon, which is the Mystery Writers of America National Conference. I went there this past summer, and I was terrible at networking. I just clammed up. I felt like the new kid on the first day at a new high school, and the only person I could get the courage up to say hi to was Jack Carr. And, you know. And didn't he I, turn out he was, to be a nice guy? He was so nice. He was so he nice. He's one he of the, the nicest publisher. people ever. And, you know, I always laugh when I do, when I say that, because I'm pretty sure Jack could kill any one of us with one finger. <laughs> but he is, oh, yeah. seriously, he is so nice. He really is. Oh, it's he ran around and introduced me to a whole bunch of people. He was just so, so nice. Well, that's great. I'm glad you had a, a good experience with that. So, Kent, where are you planning to appear? You're pretty, you know, pretty, um, what's the word? I was going to say relentless, but that doesn't seem fair. Um, no, you're very good about, about traveling and meeting your fans and doing very long tours and so forth. Are you going to any conventions um, coming up? Uh, well, I have a lot of appearances across the country, um, many one book, one community library reads. Yeah. I love those programs. 
Um, uh, I'll be in South Carolina this weekend for a fundraiser for mm -hmm. Mary Alice Monroe and a, a literacy program that she supports. Um, but but I, I'll be honest with you, Barbara, I'm stepping back a little bit. You know, I did uh, I did almost 100 events last year across the country, and uh, <laughs> I got a little burned out. I love meeting people. Amy, you're going to love this, too. When you do an event and it's a and it's a live event and you have an audience and they're there because they love what you do, the energy there is just um, like nothing else. Like it's it is a high no drug will ever give you. So mm -hmm. uh, I love the events, but the travel can be uh, exhausting. I'm trying not to laugh because before you went in your hundred odyssey you told me you were cutting back yeah i know i say <laughs> that every yeah, yeah. right <laughs> so there you are it, i i'm not sure that there's not a different form of addiction in play here but <laughs> well i'm i'm in no. a fortunate i'm in a fortunate position amy you have young children it's hard to get yeah. away to do a, a tour like that if you have yeah. young children but you know i broke into the business when I was much older than you are. So my children were grown and I could, I had the freedom to do that kind of thing. And your wife retired, which was a really, yeah, exactly. you know, an, an additional yep. bonus as you could do that together. But anyway, this has been a very exciting time for you, Amy. Um, and I want to congratulate you on the great reviews, the starred review from Publishers Weekly, a starred review from William Camp Kruger, starred review from me, um, and possibly other prestigious publications. And so, forth. so good for you. It was, in, um, it was in, it was in this prestigious, just publication. Woohoo! Oh yeah? Yeah. Wow. It was in it was in this right there. There you are. Uh -huh. I love it. See that's that's the great work of your publicist at Emily Bessler. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Very, very Shout good. out to Holly Rice. There you go. Now Patrick, come and join us and tell us if there are any questions from the Facebook who might have all left after we got a link <laughs> but maybe they came back. Oh. No, thankfully they all stayed. Oh, good. Let's see here. Yeah, I have quite a few questions. Um, one is from Pam. Amy, what was your childhood like and were you always a reader? Oh, yes. Uh, so really traditional, you know, I have a sister. We grew up in sort of a middle-class Wisconsin town, Green Bay area. Mm. Um, you know, my my earliest book memory, though, is that my great grandpa gave me his 1908 first edition copy of Anne of Green Gables when I was eight or nine years wow. old. And that was when because Anne becomes an author in the books. And that was when I thought, well, I think I want to do that, too. And at about the same time, in like second grade, there was some essay competition that I won. And my second grade teacher told me I was a good writer. So I very much internalized that. Right, let's see. Um, okay, Renee says, Amy needs to find someone to take care of her kids, dogs, and husband. <laughs> That's not a question. Not That's necessarily in that order. <laughs> no. That's right. Uh, let's see, question is about, um, about your, or I'm sorry, are either of you coming to Left Coast Crime? Uh, so happy Barbara will be there. That's what Robin says. Probably I love not. Left Coast Crime. It's... Uh, I have to be honest, I love it better than I love Bausher Khan, um, because it's a little more intimate. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just, uh, but I have to skip it this year, so I won't be at Left Coast this year. But I will be at Bausher Khan. Amy, you're going to be at Bausher Khan? I will. I'm going to be going there and then probably to Thriller Fest. 
Okay. Wonderful. That sounds great. I'm luckily going to Left Coast Crime, which I agree with Ken. It, VoucherCon is just capping out at 2,000 people. And yes. Left Coast Crime is probably five or 600, maybe gets a little bit higher. And I'm going to have a fun thing to do because um, the publisher of Amazon and I are both going to interview the guest of honor, uh, Robert Dugoni, who is one of my very favorite people. And so I'm really looking forward to that. But I don't get to go to BoucherCon because Douglas Preston, one of my favorite people, again, has written an opera. And it is going to debut, are you ready for this, on the Thursday of BoucherCon, and then they're going to burn Sazobra in Santa Fe, which is what the opera is all about. The 65 foot, you know, thing with the grief on Friday night, which would leave me only Saturday to go and make my way through 2000 people. And so I decided that it probably isn't going to work. Um, so, you know, our loyalties are, you know, friends, friends trump other things. Right. In this case, um, it dictates what's happening. But for those who are interested in BoucherCon, which is the International Mystery Conference, is going to meet in New Orleans in uh, 2025, and then, yay, in Alberta, in Canada again in 2026. Canada has hosted um, one in Toronto. I'm trying to remember. Have they done maybe two in Toronto? I think that might be it. Um, but anyway, I think it's great, you know, that um, it's going to move to other countries, or at least- It really true, truly will be international. Yeah. Right. Plus, you know, if you go to Alberta, Banff is just across I mean, yeah. like an hour, you know, so it gives you a great chance to do some beautiful scenery. But anyway, those are all great. Amy Thriller Fest is the end of May. Um, mm -hmm. Right. So you're planning on going to that? I am. These are always at the worst possible time for parents with kids. It's like yeah. the very end of the school year and BoucherCon is the very beginning of the school year. And like I said, my husband is a middle school teacher, so right. it just... But you know what? Needs must. Well, <laughs> there the you go. used to be after the 4th of July, and VoucherCon can be anywhere from the end of November to um, to Labor Day. It's just sort of a fluke that it's been at Labor Day for the last couple of years. But it's a function, really, of hotels and other stuff um, that control it. So there's no set schedule for these events. You just have to pay attention to them. And left coast crime meanders all the way from February to this year to the middle of April. Anyway. And for anybody out there who uh, has lots of favorite mystery authors, yeah. if you, uh, BoucherCon's open to everybody. Um, and it's this year, it's in Nashville. And if you were to register, um, you would probably be able to belly up to the bar with some of your favorite mystery authors. I guarantee that. That's right. It's great for fans, but it's also good for aspiring writers too, because you there get you a to, networking. Yeah. Yeah. Or just learn from, you know, learn from panels and for other things. And agents hang out there and publishers, editors often go. So, you know, it's a great way to um it's an economical way because there's a, a clump of people. Anything else, Patrick? Yeah, several people are are kind of curious about the cover design and it's it's really beautiful design and did you have any input into that I did so they sent me an initial drawing and it I it didn't look at anything like Wisconsin it was a very similar scene with a guy standing like on a dock next to a lake but it looked like coastal Georgia or something like that so I just pulled an image off the internet of a of basically a photo 
of a guy standing on a Wisconsin lakeshore at sunset, and they pretty much just made it into this cover. It was beautiful. And the light yeah, is gorgeous. In fact, they said that it was a struggle because it was too pretty. Like they had to find ways to make it look more ominous and not quite so beautiful. Um, let's see. Barbara, VoucherCon, did, wasn't it just in New Orleans not too long ago? No, um, it, it was, but didn't it get canceled? It was a yeah. couple, I no, think, wiped it out. Last one, that's the last one I actually went to was in 2016. Yeah, now it, it, that's why it's going back to New Orleans kind of out of turn because of the weather. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder to predict the effect of weather on almost anything. Um, and so, you know, even if you make plans to go to a lot of these things, you have to be prepared for an interruption, but, you know, we can hope for the best. Right. We, we have a number of people that are curious about book two. Is there anything that you can reveal about it? Huh. Well, um, I can reveal that Alyssa Mason, the FBI agent is back in Shaky Lake. Oh, yep. And, um, the underlying, the sort of loose threads at the very end of Northwoods are things that get picked back up as part of a larger conspiracy. Ooh, I like that. I love a good conspiracy. Who doesn't? Yeah. Shaky Lake is actually a, a good title, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, Might oh. Be. that's really, you know what? I have been, I do not Sounds have a like for the second book. I'll keep that in mind. Sounds like a Kent Kruger title. <laughs> I was yep. just thinking the same thing patrick yeah you know uh amy i read uh i read uh, uh northwood shortly after i had done an event in Manaqua, and i you know when i was reading i'm going boy this is so like Manaqua. <laughs> mm -hmm. did you did you have a particular place in mind or was it just you wanted to capture the essence of um that kind of community it is a fictionalized mashup of Manaqua with maybe a little bit of lake geneva thrown okay in. Mm hmm. Like, yeah, especially know. because of the prohibition era gangster stuff, because oh, yeah. Aqua is the little bohemia where John Dillinger had the shootout with the FBI. Like that stuff is all still there. Lake Geneva has changed so much. When I was a child, my grandparents had a cottage on Lake Geneva, which is very low key and the whole bit. Now I understand, you know, it's Fancy. Oh, nice. Right. You know, mega mansions and all kinds of, um, I mean, I haven't been there obviously for decades, but it's interesting that, you know, how I used to live for a while in Tennessee in a place where there was, it was very rural. There weren't any big houses, you know, it was a little tiny country club, the whole nine yards. And then somehow or other people decided that they wanted the rural life. And all of a sudden mega mansions popped up everywhere and, everything changed. Do you think that rural Wisconsin is in, you know, because Ken in, in his books, some, you know, Northern Minnesota became a real kind of gilded age playground, didn't it, Ken, for people with big money that would go up there and have giant, you know, fabulous hunting lodges and all. Yeah, just try to get the lakefront property anymore at a reasonable price. It doesn't exist. Mm. And I'm, I'm sure it's the same in uh, Wisconsin up north. Oh yeah, we we stayed at a friend's cabin in Tomahawk, which is pretty close to Manaqua, you know. And you look up and down at whatever real estate's for sale, and it's all million dollar plus yeah. for yeah. You know, fairly small places. Right, and there's riverfront property in Wisconsin too. Let's not forget that the Mississippi comes. I really enjoyed going down after the St. Paul voucher con. You know, Rob and I went from Red Wing 
ostensibly St. Paul, but they lied to us. <laughs> it was really Red Wing, um, down to um, St. Louis. And we stopped in several places. My dad grew up in Perry, Iowa. So, you know, I kind of thought that I knew something about, well, actually, maybe it's Iowa. Does Wisconsin have a Mississippi border? Oh, yeah. Am I, yeah. It does, doesn't Dubuque, it? Uh, um, Dubuque, yeah. right? Okay, right. So, Anyway, um, when I was a kid, it was a big deal to drive from Chicago over to the river just to watch the, I know that sounds hilarious, but we used to pile into the car and drive over just to watch the Mississippi run. That was our idea of a really great vacation. <laughs> oh, how things have changed. Right. Anything else, Patrick? Um, let's see. Yeah. Did you, did you study to be a nurse or did you always want to be a writer? I guess those aren't mutually exclusive. But... I always wanted to be a writer. I guess when it came to, you know, college, I opted to go the practical route. I mean, what's more practical than being a nurse? So I opted to go that route and I liked it well enough, but I've always had, and I've been doing this for 20, nearly 25 years. And I have always had a bit of an imposter complex that I never quite got over with it. And so now as an author, I feel like that's a lot more authentic to who I really am. So that's a that's a good feeling to have, you know, for the first time when I'm 45. At least she wasn't much younger than you. Mm -mm. How much? You, no. you don't look 45. No, she doesn't. Good. She Something's looks working. Much younger. <laughs> but I like that idea that you know you feel more authentic. Um, yeah. how, did you, did that happen to you, Kent? Did you feel more authentic once you actually became a writer? Yeah, I was actually able to tell people I'm I'm a writer. And uh, and and really back it up, you know. Well, actually, I, mean, I, I don't know about you, Amy. I I've always been a writer. It I it took me to to me until I was forty eight years old to become an author. Yeah, where you put something, seen it through to the end, and sold it. <laughs> yeah. So is your distinction that a writer is a writer, but an author is a published writer? That I would make that distinction because, um, you know, almost everybody I know is a writer. Um, much fewer of them are are authors, you know. I think that's a fair summation. Yep. Absolutely. Well, it's wonderful that Kent has been leading his best life the entire time I've known him, but now I get a chance to talk to Amy. One of the things that's been the most fun in doing this for 35 years is to talk to first-time writers, to, to debut authors. Um, not every bookstore really wants to do that because, you know, it, it's not necessarily profitable, but I think the most fun Patrick and I have had over, you know, all these years together is meeting new authors, introducing people to new voices, championing, you know, um, debuts and avoiding the obvious. Um, and for me, one of the sincere pleasures in this business is when I get to read um, something like Northwoods from an author nobody first time and just get my socks knocked off by how good it is. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much. That's, yep. Wow. Very dazzling praise. Thank you. Well, on that note, before you burst into tears, <laughs> we, will, <laughs> we will say what a pleasure. Unless, Patrick, I'm sorry, unless I'm kidding. Yeah. More question. Oops. Yeah, and since we started a little late, I figured we could run over five sure. minutes or so. Um, yeah. Uh, do you plan to write any medical mysteries or will your will your day, day gig figure into your fiction at all? It already does. It the, uh, There's a lot of insider 
yeah. knowledge. You know what? I tried really hard not to cram anything down people's throat in this book, you know, like issues, because there are issues like, you know, addiction and whatever. And I tried not to be too preachy about it and make it feel like a public safety announcement. Um, but it all, it all uh, finds its way into my writing. Wow, and speaking of, and speaking of crying, I will say the one thing that has gotten me really emotional in this whole process was listening to the audiobook version of this. It was, I, was I don't just know why that got that. me. Oh, oh, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so many people are, are listening to audiobooks these days. It's huge part of part of the marketplace now. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. Right. Yeah. Anything else now? Um, there's curiosity about, you know, the opening lines of a book, you know, like the first couple lines. Um, do you have time to like read, maybe read a sentence or two and then tell us, did those remain unchanged or how, how did that work? They did. So the first chapter, as you see it, is very little changed from the very first draft. Um, so, and in fact, in fact, the first paragraph for sure is the exact first paragraph that I wrote when I first years and years ago sat down to write it. So um, I can read that if you want. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Eli North stripped off his clothes and waded into the water. The lake muck cushioned his feet, and when he was in up to his chest, he rested his plastic travel mug on the water's surface and let his feet drift upward. He had always been good at floating. That's a key sentence. He'd always been good at floating. And yeah, then, then he suffers a concussion, and I thought... And then later, there's a lawnmower accident and all. And I thought Ooh, that's where your I medical, know. I know, but that's where your medical treatment, I thought, um, and there's a stabbing. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here um, that I think has extra resonance and authenticity because um, Amy writes it as somebody who knows her way around a body, right? True. Do you find that people in, uh, in, in fiction, since you have this background, they recover way too fast, you know, from some of these injuries that they have. Um, do you notice that or does that? I don't sense? notice it as too much of a problem, I guess. Sometimes you're just, most, I would say most authors that I read must have put in a bit of time and effort to make sure that things weren't totally implausible. Gotcha. I think that's about it, Barbara. Wonderful. Well, let me say again. Congratulations to you. Um, Thank you so much. Oh, please. It's just a brilliant moment, you know, for us and, and a gratifying moment, I think, for you, you know, as a newly published author to have a chance to talk to fans and to have an icon like William Cameron. I know. I know. I didn't know, Barbara, that, that Kent was joining us until I was, I re-looked at your email with the Zoom link in it and because there has been nothing in the communication about it. That about I was, I was trying to surprise you. And also, I know. I never and you did surprise it. me, except for then I actually went down and looked at the whole email, you know, days and days later. And I freaked out. I'm no. so, I'm so pleased. Thank you so much. It's I, been a pleasure, Amy. Yeah. You're a real champ. I mean, Kent obviously has a very heavy schedule. And I yeah. so much appreciate the fact that you took out an hour here to do this with us. So. Yeah. Many thanks. 
Um, and thank all of, I thank all of you for joining us tonight. Um, stay safe, stay warm, <laughs> wherever you are. Um, and um, by all means, grab a copy of Northwoods. So we have our signed books coming. And actually, we're going to have more signed books coming because I think I need to order more. So don't miss your chance. You know, the thing is, you'll never... The great thing about, about doing it with a first novel is that you get bragging rights, right? Because yeah. you, you can say you were there. It wasn't, you know... And you can't ever duplicate that. If you miss a first novel, you never really get that chance ever again. It's like, you know, being a virgin all over again, right? A book virgin. One of my favorite things. Well, Iron, Iron Lake was a, a selection of our first mystery club. It was. That absolutely went. true. Yeah. yeah. That was a banner thank year. You, thank for, you. Thank you. Well, it was a banner year for Midwest Mystery because it was you and Steve Hamilton. You know, mm -hmm. it was you in Minnesota mm -hmm. and Steve in um, Northern Michigan and... Um, yeah, it was a really big one-two punch that year. So um started putting the North Country on the map. That's right. Indeed. Anyway, thanks everybody for joining us. Thank you, Amy, very much. Stay in touch. Thank you. Good night, Kent. Have a wonderful safe trip to South Carolina, where in theory it will be warmer than Wisconsin or yeah. Minnesota. Right. Bye, okay. everybody. Nice. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.